Hey folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where lots of news have been breaking the last few hours. Oh, my gosh, there were injunctions against uh, John Bolton for his book, an injunction against the Virginia governor stopping him from removing the Robert E. Lee statue in the capital of Virginia. Uh, That's just uh, the Supreme Court uh, blocking President Trump from reversing the DACA uh, immigrant uh, law. Uh, so many things going on. If you need to stay in touch, go right now to justthenews.com and you'll get the latest headlines. Every time I turn around and check the site, five new news things have happened. It's been a busy, important time. Now, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. I want to switch from my normal fare of Russia uh, and take a look a little bit at holding our public health officials accountable for the bad predictions and the bad advice that they uh, gave us early and often in the pandemic. Uh, so we've got a good story on our site today by Michael Fomento. It goes through 10 really egregious examples, and I'm going to go over them with you. And then uh, we're going to have a great conversation with Shahid Buttar. He is a liberal Democrat uh, trying to unseat the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, in the fall election. For the first time in Nancy Pelosi's uh, entire history in uh, San Francisco, 30 years, She's not going to face a Republican in the fall. It's going to be a race between two Democrats. Shahid Buttar is here to talk to us. He has some very harsh words about Nancy Pelosi and says she's easy to attack from the right and the left and the center because she doesn't have a value system. That He's going to describe how he plans to run against her and the unique opportunity to see in a very liberal district that's clearly going to stay Democrat Pelosi potentially threatened for the first time by a Democratic challenger in the fall election rather than a Republican. That's going to be a fascinating interview. Don't miss it. It's very interesting. He's got a lot to say, including about the Russia collusion investigation. He's a liberal Democrat. He's not a big fan of what the Democrats did to President Trump either. You're going to want to hear that. Okay, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. 
hear from our great sponsors and advertisers. And we come back, we're going to talk about 10 ways our public health officials, yes, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, the Surgeon General, how they gave us bad advice, misleading information, bad predictions in the COVID-19 crisis. It's time to hold them accountable. And Just the News is going to do just that right after this commercial break. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And uh, as promised, we're going to get right to our very important story today on the Just the News website. Ten ways our public health officials misled us, gave us bad information, gave us bad advice that has been consequential in the coronavirus, COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic. So let me get right to that list. Michael Fumento, one of our writers, uh, medical expert, uh, wrote this story. It's gotten a lot of attention around the country. We want you to hear the top 10 things that our public health officials, yes, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield at the CDC, uh, the Surgeon General, uh, that they all got wrong. Uh, Here we go. The number one thing, they got the threat level wrong. I don't know if you remember this, but back on January 21st, right when the first COVID case showed up in the United States publicly, it was Dr. Fauci who went on TV, went on a conservative website, in fact, Newsmax TV, and said, obviously, you need to take it seriously and you do the kind of things the CDC and the Department of Homeland Security is doing, but this is not a major threat to the people of the United States. Well, 111,000 deaths later, that prediction, that piece of advice was not right. Uh, by April, remember Dr. Redfeld, the CDC director and Dr. Fauci's sidekick in this, he was calling the pandemic, quote, the greatest public health crisis that has hit the nation in more than 100 years. So how did we go from this is no big deal to the biggest health crisis? That's one of our bad predictions, bad pieces of advice, wrong information that we got from uh, our public health officials. I'm going to give you number two. Remember the issue of masks? It, they, were, they were against them before they were for them. So on, uh, I think it was February 29th, Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General, literally tweeted this. Seriously, people, stop buying masks. Okay, now everybody's supposed to wear masks. They got that wrong. The CDC initially said that uh, there was no value to having masks on. Uh, and then they flip-flopped and said there is a value. In fact, they're now making it uh, uh, as strong a recommendation as possible in large letters. This is what the CDC says today. Cover your mouth and nose with a cloth face cover when around others. All right. So we went from you don't need to wear a face mask unless you're caring for someone who's sick to wear it all the time. That's the number two piece of bad advice, bad prediction, uh, bad prognostication that we got from our public health officials. Number three, Asymptomatic transmission. We went from, oh my God, this is going to be how it's spread to, there's very little evidence that many people get sick from asymptomatic patients. Let's go back to the tape. June 8th, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhoff, head of the WHO's Emerging Diseases and Zoonosis Unit, so the real expert for a coronavirus inside WHO, here's what she said. From the data we have, it still seems to be rare that an asymptomatic person actually transmits onward to a second individual. It's very rare. So very rare. Okay, that's pretty amazing because it wasn't that long before that they were saying that this was the primary reason that you could get sick from someone who didn't even know they had the virus and that's how it was spreading and everyone was panicked. Well, guess what? 
they flip-flopped and changed on that too. All right, number four, the mortality rate. Remember, uh, it was going to be 3.4% according to WHO, World Health Organization. That was the prognostication in March. Uh, well, now the CDC says it's best guess figure, <laughs> and they're still guessing, which I wonder why, but is it's 0.26 or just about two and a half times worse than the flu rate, but far less than the 0.67 death rate of the Asian flu of 1957-58, which killed an estimated 223 Americans back in the late 50s, 3 million worldwide. Um, So when we look at that now, 3.4% to a quarter of one point, they had the mortality rate wrong from the beginning, and that's probably because they were measuring against only confirmed cases, and they weren't having testing yet, so they gave us a bad death rate. And uh, that's the number four. But number five goes right hand in hand with this, the death toll model. Remember when 2.2 million million Americans were predicted that they were going to die? That was the British epidemiologist Neil Ferguson. Uh, He put it at 2.2 million American deaths, 510,000 deaths. Um, Well, today it's, you know, still bad, 111, 112, 113,000 deaths. But it's not in the million range as originally predicted. And a lot of the early models that had you know, 200,000, 300,000 people dying by Easter did not come true. Now, I don't want to minimize 100,000 people is 100,000 too many. We don't want that many people, of course, to have died. But our, our forecasting models, these models that these scientists get paid to create, they've been nowhere near close to reality at any point in this process. And it's another buyer beware moment among our public health officials when you go through this. All right. Six, cause of death. Uh, This is an important one. Initially, there were no tests for COVID-19. So it's understandable, you know, that there might have been some confusion about what caused it. Was it the coronavirus? Was it the regular flu? Did someone have a heart attack, but also have COVID-19? And then uh, there were incentives to uh, given to people to report any death that occurred with someone who had COVID-19 as a COVID-19 death. And of course, there are a lot of people who are uh, predicting that that has only been a uh, misleading incentive, that uh, that the uh, real truth of the matter is that a lot of people were listed with COVID-19 deaths that actually died from something else, a car crash, a heart attack. And really, the primary uh, group of people who have died are particularly old people, people well over 65, and those who have serious pre-existing conditions or comorbidities, uh, diabetes, disease. It also looks like, from what we're hearing, that people who have A blood versus O type blood are far more vulnerable. So we're learning a lot more. But the cause of death and the way things were reported uh, at the beginning has changed significantly. And uh, that's another one early on that after the billions of dollars we've given all these public health agencies, we didn't have good parameters, good ways to uh, identify or help people understand what it was that uh, was causing a death early on in the COVID-19 crisis. All right, here's one of my favorites because it comes from my hometown area, New York City, Connecticut, the ventilator crisis. Remember Andrew Cuomo uh, talking about people were going to be dying, that we're going to have 70,000 hospitalized, and uh, he wouldn't have enough uh, ventilators. Well, We all went in and paid billions of dollars to get ventilators uh, bought and moving and going, and we never had a shortage ever. 
Uh, isn't that amazing? Uh, in fact, President Trump kept saying, I don't think we need even 40,000 or 30,000, but Cuomo kept banging his hand. Turns out we didn't use anywhere near that number. But we bought a lot of ventilators now. We're going to have them on hand for the next crisis, that's for sure. But boy, ventilators is still pretty remarkable. I think those who needed it, uh, if I've read this correctly, it was around 16,000 in New York. So way, way below the numbers that we thought were going to be needed at that point. Uh, still, uh, one of those panic moments in the crisis where our public health officials, our leaders, were demanding something that ultimately turned out not to be. And yet we spent a lot of money pursuing it. All right. The idea that we could get COVID easily from services where it was standing. Remember that? The idea that it was all over the place. And if you touched a package or a surface or your mail, well, it turns out that that wasn't true either. Uh, you can take that one off that the risk uh, now, according to those who um, uh, say it, is uh, that it's much lower uh, surface to uh, surface and that the primary way people are getting this is because simply person to person spread. One sick person infected symptomatic gives it to another person because they're too close to each other and they get it through through the spread of the virus that way. But there were a lot of great moments where that was uh, a problem. And so uh, that's a big one. Hydroxychloroquine, that's another one. If you remember early on, it was it, it was going to be a big savior. President Trump got behind it. Now it seems as though it's not that valuable, uh, certainly not to people at the end stages and certainly not to prevent you from getting it. But where it is apparently beginning to... Um, uh, grow is in people with mild early versions of the case. There is growing evidence uh, that um, if you take it early while you have the early symptoms, it can help lessen the symptoms and speed your um, thing. And also, there was a false report. Here's another one. A false report in Lancet, the famous medical journal, that claimed that hydroxychloroquine was creating a, an inordinate number of deaths through irregular heartbeats. In fact, uh, that was the conclusion. Uh, turns out that story had to be retracted because the data was bad. So the whole hydroxychloroquine has turned out to be a big disaster for us. Um, the expectation going in and coming out have changed, though there is some evidence, as the president claimed that people who take it early after they get the infection might, uh, might be improving. That's a very important. But the fact that Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine had to retract criticisms of hydroxychloroquine because they had bad data. That That's turned out to be another one of those moments where our public health officials were all over the map and ultimately gave us multiple instances of bad data, bad information. That's an important one. And finally, number 10, go on a cruise ship. Don't go on a cruise ship. This is another famous one from Anthony Fauci. I remember back in March, then <laughs> this turned out to be some bad advice if there ever was one. This is Dr. Fauci, direct quote from him. If you are a healthy young person, there is no reason if you want to go on a cruise ship, go on a cruise ship. But the fact is that you have an individual who has an underlying condition, particularly an elderly person who has an underlying condition, I would recommend strongly that they do not go on a cruise ship. Well, a few weeks later, we flipped that one entirely. The U.S. State Department saying by early April, U.S. citizens, particularly travelers with underlying health conditions, should not travel by cruise ship at all. And if you remember, we had all those cruise ships with people who went on the trips that were trapped and quarantined and couldn't get into port. Another piece of bad advice. So there you have it. Ten pieces of advice from our so-called public health officials, our so-called public health experts 
that turned out to be bad, misleading, uh, bad guesses, bad advice, uh, bad warnings. Uh, and these all had a costly effect. I would add an 11th one. It's not on the list, but for a limited number of states, I think you have to add New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and these states that sent COVID patients back to nursing homes. I think that turn, well, may turn out to be the most lethal and deadly bad medical advice, bad medical decision made in this crisis. We're now hearing as many as 40 to 50,000 people may have died in nursing homes. Almost half of those who died in America may have been in a nursing home, certainly more than 40%. And that number keeps growing as the numbers get more precise. That is a very scary, sad thing. And I believe that really should be the 11th one. It's not in this story because it deserves its own treatment. And we've written a lot about the failure, particularly of Governor Cuomo in New York. But uh, on nursing homes, I think you will find out at the end that that may have been the most consequential, most serious medical mistake. Our public health experts, our public health leaders, the public health establishment uh, uh, delivered to us. And uh, we'll need hearings and investigations to understand what we can learn from that. One of the reasons we do this list is not to shame our public health officials, but to go back and revise so that people in America can understand what we got right, what we got wrong, so that the next time we have a pandemic, we don't repeat these same mistakes. That's why we do this journalism. That's why Michael Fomento did it. If you enjoyed this story, by all means, please um, pass it on to your friends and, and let people know that we've learned a lot about COVID-19. And one of the biggest learnings is our public health officials, the people we gave billions of dollars to prepare for the pandemic, they didn't have a whole lot of things right at the beginning of this terrible tragedy that we've all uh, suffered from in America and across the globe. All right, I'm John Solomon. You're listening to John Solomon Reports. When we come back, Shahid Buttar will be joining us. He's the man who wants to put Nancy Pelosi into retirement. He's running against her as a Democrat in the fall election in the San Francisco House District that Nancy Pelosi has represented for three decades. You're going to want to hear this man. He's a fascinating man. He has lots of points of agreement with conservatives on issues like FISA and uh, the FBI uh, deep state monitoring capabilities and spying capabilities. He also thinks the Russia collusion case was a bad card to play uh, by uh, his Democrat, own Democratic Party. And he talks about the vulnerabilities and frustrations that he has as a constituent of uh, Nancy Pelosi that drove him, Shahid Buttar, to run against her this fall. When we come back from the commercial break, Shahid Buttar, you're going to want to hear this one. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest today, Shahid Buttar, the candidate running against Nancy Pelosi in the Democratic primary in California, joins us. And Shahid, I wanted to uh, welcome you to the show. And um, first, as we get started, 
I'd like to talk a little bit about your background because you've done some really interesting uh, stuff and we've intersected on some issues related to government surveillance. I wonder if you can introduce yourself to our audience first. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. I'm an immigrant to the United States. My family came when I was a child. I was two years old, born in uh, the UK, and I'm part of a diaspora from South Asia. So my family is from a country that was colonized for half a millennium by the British. And I grew up in rural Missouri, had a chance to spend uh, the better part of 10 years in Chicago, going to school at night to get my undergrad degree while I worked for a series of banks during the day, uh, and then had a chance to both study and then teach at Stanford Law School. 20 years ago. And then in the time since then, I've basically fought to defend and expand human rights in the courts, in the streets, in the policy sphere, both in San Francisco and in Washington, D.C. It's a, it's an amazing uh, record. And you've had a lot of impact, whether it's in grassroots organizing, uh, where I first intersected, I believe, with you many years ago, uh, when I was still an AP reporter and Washington Post reporter, was on, on some FBI surveillance issues. Talk a little bit about your work for the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation and some of the uh, efforts to preserve American liberties that you did there. Appreciate that. EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is the one of the world's largest and most prolific digital civil liberties organizations. For four years and change, I served as the organization's director of grassroots advocacy. So my job at EFF was basically coordinating and spearheading local and state-based campaigns to fight government surveillance around the country. So, for instance, one of the last campaigns there I had a chance to support was a campaign here in San Francisco that established the first municipal ban on face surveillance technology established in the country. And that campaign since then has, has spread from coast to coast. And this is a, the idea that if facial recognition tools uh, do exist, that they shouldn't be secretly used by police departments to facilitate discrimination. And that's a problem that's baked both into the law and the code and responding to the very same events that are driving so many people around the country into the streets, uh, as well as an awareness of the emerging possibility of digital dystopia. Uh, I was grateful with my colleagues and you know, the organization's supporters around the country to, to spearhead that campaign. M my work there, I would say, also around um, other issues that we worked on at EFF beyond government surveillance that I was proud to have a chance to help promote include promoting the right of users to control the devices that they purchase, as opposed to being subject to arbitrary corporate control. Uh, net neutrality is another example of a digital right, sort of outside the surveillance and right to repair context. Uh, there's a whole bunch of issues that relate to government transparency. And that's, for me, one of the real reasons I'm running for this race. I've seen Nancy Pelosi as a tool of executive power and a servant, an agent of executive aggrandizement with really horrifying constitutional consequences. I think a lot of people don't realize the danger that the centralization of power in the executive branch presents to our republic. And as an immigrant constitutional lawyer, I take the defense of our republic very seriously. It's why I'm running for Congress, because I recognize that the Constitution and we the people need policymakers who understand the Constitution well enough to defend it when it's implicated. And having seen Nancy Pelosi serve as an architect of mass surveillance, as an architect of mass incarceration, as a cheerleader for wars for profit and executive secrets, keeping any number of crimes behind uh, a veil that the public can't see, uh, all of those things sort of frankly forced my hand. You know, I, I loved working at EFF. In some respects, I, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind still working there, but uh, somebody needs to take Nancy Pelosi out of Congress, and I'm happy to do it. 
The um, Now, a lot of people, when they oversimplify, they say you're just simply running to the left and Nancy Pelosi, but it's a much different coalition that you're building. Young people, libertarians, uh, talk a little bit about the enthusiasm that your campaign has been able to to generate and, and the momentum it's starting to get. You're, you're right to seize both on the momentum and an independent thing. Maybe it's breadth. I'm frankly running on all sides of Nancy Pelosi. She's such a partisan without principle that it's actually possible to run to her left and right at the same time. Uh, you know, I'm running to her uh, right, you might say, on issues that relate to, for instance, individual privacy in the face of a government mass surveillance regime that she's thoroughly complicit in, or international human rights that have been offended by the CIA torture that she's helped cover up for over 10 years. Uh, and I'm also running to her left by, for instance, promoting and proposing universal health care. I think that's particularly critical at a time like this when a global pandemic threatens not just uh, our economy and, and families around the country, but, but public health as a principle is very much at risk. And the strongest way to protect it is to make sure that people can get medicine when they need it, not just when they can pay for it. And the idea that we treat hospitals as if they were yacht clubs instead of like the fire department is just frankly senseless. And I see that also as a you know, part of Nancy Pelosi's legacy that we have to shrug off. I'm also uh, running to her left on issues like climate justice. I'm very eager to see us protect the future, uh, especially by investing substantial public resources in building a green economy that won't kill everyone's grandkids. Uh, those are So I have the opportunity. Another issue that I'd say is both the left and the right at the same time of Nancy Pelosi is removing cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act. It's a critical lever of racism in policing. And when we end prohibition and enable interstate banking services uh, for cannabis enterprises, that's going to be a massive economic stimulus and it will increase personal liberty. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a perfect example of a reform that's both left and right, uh, very neatly exposing what I describe as the sort of corruption of the corporate center that Nancy Pelosi represents. In fact, there are many Republicans that are now on board with doing that and uh, many more that are concerned, even if you don't agree with the um, whether uh, cannabis should be uh, uh, decriminalized, they know there's a huge amount of banking money that's sitting in mine shafts and other places that that need to be accounted for from both a safety and an economic standpoint. So there's a real movement there. When you uh, when you look out, what is it like to take on you know one of the largest establishment figures in history, a larger than life figure in Congress? Um, how do you go about taking on the Speaker of the House within her own party? You start local and then you just stretch. You know, this is the third year of my campaign. I ran in 2018. And, um, and, and in that first race, it was the same cycle. And I ran on a very similar platform to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I got more votes here in the 2018 primary than she did in New York in her race. And that was in three months. We raised about $60,000. Fast forward two years, we're now raising what it took me three months to raise two years ago. We're raising that every 10 days right now. And we have thousands of volunteers from every state in the union. We have over 20,000 donors from every state in the union. There are U.S. expats who live abroad all over the world that are supporting us. And it's really humbling to me as an immigrant to have what amounts to a global support base of Americans around the world who recognize the need for this congressional seat to be occupied by someone else. When, when you asked about, you know, what does it look like? And it speaks a little bit, and I'll try to dovetail with the earlier question in terms of the momentum that we're seeing. A lot of our early um, campaigning looked like basically just showing solidarity with the different movements here in San Francisco, responding to the objects of Pelosi's failures. So uh, for instance, the San Francisco Tenants Union, 
is a group responding to the crisis in affordable housing that Nancy Pelosi's been a part of. You know, she's been in Congress for 30 years and basically helped engineer the crisis in affordable housing uh, by overseeing a, a transformation in the landscape of federal support for for local public housing. Um, and the Tenants Union is one of the many groups here locally that supported us. Another organization that supports us because we've shown solidarity in this way are left flank vets. So these are basically vets against wars. And they've come back, particularly from service in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they are concerned about the uses of our military in ways that don't defend our national security, but instead defend Wall Street profits. And that's kind of the story of our military industrial complex. And I come from a military family. My brother served in the U.S. Army, and I am absolutely adamant that if we are going to put any soldiers at risk ever, it should be to defend the United States, not to defend Wall Street's interests halfway around the world. And that's half the reason we're in this mess. The extraterritorial projection of our so-called interests has undermined U.S. national security for 70 years. Another way of putting that is that the agencies charged with keeping us safe, the national security agencies, they undermine national security at every point in time. I've written you know, chapters and books about this. I could you know, dive into that if it's interesting. It's very parallel, frankly, to police. Where we, who we also charge with keeping us safe and, you know, in entirely too many neighborhoods in the United States, the very same people who we invest public dollars in to keep us safe, unfortunately place our neighbors at risk. And, and there's a very clean and unfortunate parallel there with, with the macrosphere and the national security arena that similarly reflects, uh, you know, you could say it's corruption, you could say it's corporate influence, you could say it's a disrespect for human rights, it's all of those things. Uh, and I'm and I'm, I'm running to challenge that on behalf of we the people of the United States. Well, it's remarkable to watch what's happened. So if you go back to 2018, uh, after you lost the primary, a Republican was able to challenge Pelosi in the uh, general election, and she got 86 percent of the, almost 87 percent of the vote in this past primary. No Republican uh, outperformed you, so you you get to run against her in the fall election, but she only got 74 percent of the vote in her own primary. And so do you see that there's some erosion of that long-term bond that she has with her with her local voter there? I mean, the numbers have changed. That's a 14-point shift in, in two years. Absolutely. And I would say it's frankly bigger than that. I mean, her totals there are inflated, particularly by her name recognition. The only reason, frankly, she even you know got did as well as she did most recently is because I'm a relative unknown in San Francisco. You know, uh, People know me in the digital rights community. People know me in the anti-war community, but the general public, you know, I'm a relatively new name to them, certainly relative to the Speaker of the House who's been in office for 30 years and is, you know, a viral feature in every news cycle. Uh, so I, I, I frankly don't think she has a chance. The only reason that she stayed in office for 30 years is because she has relied on corporate dollars to entrench her. You know, she runs Congress uh, through a mix of sort of uh, carrots and sticks. And those same carrots and sticks have been what's kept her in office for 30 years. And she hasn't debated a challenger since the 80s. And I do think that as the first Democrat, and this is very much a Democratic town, as the first Democrat to reach a November election against her, I think it certainly makes sense for her to debate me, if only so that the, the district can have a sense of what the options are. You know, I, I would describe Nancy Pelosi as having relied on corporate propaganda to stay in office, as well as corporate dollars. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, this isn't a corporatocracy. This is a democracy. We answer to we the people. And she might have Wall Street uh, support, but I have San Francisco support. And over the next four months, I'm looking forward to continuing to build 
our coalition. To, to riff on a question that you raised earlier, now the people supporting us include particularly young people, uh, particularly people who work in tech have widely broken to our campaign, recognizing the dystopia that they might be made complicit in building if they don't put policymakers in place who are able to recognize the ways that that our rights are implicated by, by public policies. Uh, in addition to the tech community and young people, we're also getting a lot of support uh, from people particularly concerned about the longstanding abuses of our military industrial complex. We're getting a lot of support from the Black Lives Matter movement, the immigrant rights movement. As a proud immigrant myself, I'm very uh, grateful for the chance to defend basic American values in the face of authoritarianism. And, and I see uh, a lot of people, both you know immigrants themselves and people born here in the United States, uh, recognizing the importance of that voice, not just somebody who understands the Constitution, but as an immigrant Muslim, you know, I have skin in the game. I have understood what is happening here in the United States for years. And the erosion of our individual freedoms, the accretion of power and secrecy in the executive branch, that's alarmed me for decades. And I've been actively working to try to stop it for decades. And I, I do that as a freedom fighter. You know, I'm concerned about democracy in America. I'm very grateful for the chance to help defend it. And uh, I, I do think that if we're going to elect anybody to Congress, it should be people who, who have that orientation and that value first uh, before an attachment to any partisan and uh, before an attachment to, you know, any set of interests. You know, I, I would like to see policymakers put the Constitution and we the people first. And that's exactly what I'm here to do. When you um, you've got some big heavy hitters in your corner as well, beyond uh, Silicon Valley, you've got. Uh, AOC, correct in your corner, right? Uh, she's uh, endorsing you. No, I I wish I did. She's she and other members of the squad have frankly been. You know, I mentioned that Pelosi runs Congress with carrots and sticks, so the squad has been. You know, unfortunately, politically, I don't want to say neutralized or co opted or intimidated. I don't know which of those things it is, uh, but unfortunately, yeah, no, the squad has been uh, quite silent in our race, for better or worse. Oh, for some reason, I thought I had seen that she had. Um... She had uh, suggested that it was good that Pelosi had a challenge, and maybe I missed that. She she might have said that, but she hasn't actually endorsed us. I would I was and and certainly any number of people online are are encouraging her to endorse us, if only because it's kind of hard to, on the one hand, maintain the principles that she publicly espouses and not, frankly, challenge Pelosi, given how much she does to enforce a corporate center and the rule of the corporate center, despite the concerns on both the left and right. Yeah, as you grow your coalition now, right? Because you got to go from thirteen percent, you got to get to fifty-one percent. Uh, what things will happen, and and will Pelosi debate you? There's been no agreement yet that she would debate you, correct? I certainly hope that she debates me. I think that ultimately turns on the press. I think that she can she can turn down invitations from us, and she has, and I expect that. But I don't think she can get away with turning down an invitation from CNN or the San Francisco Chronicle. And so I'm very eager to see those news outlets perform their constitutional function and give constituents here a chance to hear the contrast. The other things that are going to happen are a continued expansion of our endorsements. Some of the people who have endorsed us include three presidential candidates, Mike Gravel, who was a critical whistleblower and or supporter of whistleblower in the U.S. Senate. It's largely because of Mike Gravel that we learned uh, the real history of the war in Vietnam, for instance. And I think that one of the reasons Edward Snowden is an international exile instead of lauded as the national hero that he is, is that when he came forward with his revelations of government corruption, there was no Mike Gravel in Congress to defend him. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I think a lot about Edward Snowden and I think a lot about the next Edward Snowden. And I think a lot about how different that person's experience will be if I'm in Congress versus if they're not. 
and and that's one of the reasons I'm running. Um, other things that will happen it will include just the expansion of, of that set of endorsers. So in addition to Mike Gravel, other people who have endorsed us include Lawrence Lessig, who ran for president uh, in a previous cycle. I had a chance to teach for him. He was one of my first bosses when he was my constitutional law professor 20 years ago. Uh, been endorsed by several local folks, including a former president of our board of supervisors, Matt Gonzalez, um, uh, Eric Marr, former member of the board of supervisors, number of local groups, particularly in Bernie's coalition. So the SF Bernie Kratz, Progressive Democrats of America, now revolution groups, frankly, across the country, uh, DSA chapters as well. Uh, one of the particular uh, sets of endorsers I'm, I'm very grateful for, and it's poignant this week to reflect on this in the wake of the Supreme Court decision yesterday, Jason West was the mayor of New Paltz, New York, and he was one of my first clients when I was in private practice. He was the second mayor in the country to recognize the right of consenting adults to marry a partner of their choice. And he was the only person in the country ever criminally prosecuted for supporting gay marriage. And I'm very proud to have fought for gay rights in the courts since 2004, especially as a cis hetero Muslim lawyer. And I, you know, I raised that history both because it's implicated very recently. The Supreme Court yesterday uh, expanded workplace Correct. protections yeah. against discrimination. Landmark ruling. LGBT. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Landmark ruling. And I remember the last one in this line, the Oberfeld decision in 2015, uh, was a decision uh, by a similarly constituted court to recognize and enshrine nationally the right of consenting adults to marry a partner of their choice. I raise this because Nancy Pelosi did not support marriage equality until the eve of that decision. And I live in the gay capital of the country. And I fought for gay rights as a Muslim lawyer because I recognize that one person's oppression is somebody else's oppression tomorrow. And we can't pretend to care about justice if we don't go to bat for our neighbor's rights, even if our own rights aren't implicated. You know, my history, my career has been all about solidarity. And, and I fought for gay rights for exactly that reason, you know, solidarity and a recognition that civil rights for some have to include civil rights for all. And, and it is exactly that inclination to look skeptically at power, to look at ways to defend individual rights, to look at creative ways to confront power on behalf of those individual rights. That's the practice that that brought me here. And that's very much the practice that I want to take to Congress on, on behalf of we, the people of the United States. The um, I want to take you to one area because a lot of our readers obviously have an interest in the Russia case, the Russia collusion case and what we've learned about the FBI. And I want to focus you on one thing because you're a lawyer and I know um, uh, this is a, a subject that goes beyond politics or Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi. When you hear the inspector general of the Justice Department say that there were 29 FISA warrants in the last five years that they reviewed and all 29, all 29 failed the uh, test for accuracy and 24 of the 29 apparently didn't even have the alleged files that, that are needed, the Woods files, to substantiate uh, the invasion of one's privacy. Do you see an agency in distress here? Forget the Russia collusion case per se, but what do you think of the FBI current compliance with FISA? I, I've seen the FBI assault liberty in the United States for decades, like even long before I became a lawyer. The FBI's earliest history, going back over 100 years, is pervaded by the suppression of, of rights. And, and another way to put that is there's never been a point at which the FBI was actually a law enforcement institution. It's violated the Constitution, at least in the context of suppressing First Amendment rights, for over a century. Whether it was deporting labor union activists during the Palmer raids, whether it was infiltrating civil rights 
groups in the 50s and the 60s and 70s or infiltrating Latin American solidarity groups in the 80s or uh, criminalizing animal rights and environmental rights groups as supposed terrorists in the 90s under Clinton. You know, there's never been a point at which the FBI respected First Amendment rights. And over the course of my career, I've seen that dial up. Uh, for there was there was two years that I led, I launched a program to combat racial and religious profiling, particularly confronting the FBI at an organization here in San Francisco called Muslim Advocates. That was uh, the tail end of the Bush administration, the beginning of the Obama administration. And my central antagonist from 2008 to 2010 was Bob Mueller. He was the head of the FBI. And, you know, I, I remember writing a coalition letter to Congress in 2010. Bob Mueller lied to Congress and then admitted it in writing, uh, never paid a price for it. You know, and what he was lying to Congress about was the legal standard under which the FBI uh, presumes upon itself the right to infiltrate First Amendment protected groups. And it's an incredibly sensitive power because it's it's been used by the Bureau to, in its own words, neutralize domestic social movements any number of times in the past. And this is a, it would have been July, I think, 2010, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. Bob Mueller claims in this hearing that a, uh, uh, a reasonable suspicion of criminal activity is required as a legal predicate to justify the use of undercover infiltration as a law enforcement tactic. And we knew that wasn't true. And he then wrote a letter uh, to the committee after the cameras were off, admitting it wasn't true. The letter, the fact, like what was in the letter was even worse than the fact of the letter. It's one thing to send the letter saying, oh, just kidding, after the cameras are off. It's another thing when the letter admits, as it did, that there is no effective legal standard constraining the FBI. He said in this letter that reasonable suspicion is one example of a proper purpose, but any proper purpose is sufficient. And the thing I would focus on here as a lawyer is that there's no means tailoring. In, in constitutional scrutiny, the different tiers of scrutiny are supposed to have some degree of properness to the purpose or some degree of compellingness, that depending on the degree of scrutiny, the required degree of uh, how compelling is the purpose becomes increasingly extreme. But then it also requires narrow tailoring. You have to have a tailored program to the purpose. And the FBI doesn't acknowledge any need to tailor its infiltrations to purpose. And this is this is 1.0 non-electronic surveillance. When you start talking about national security letters and all the digital surveillance tools, the Bureau knows no limit at all. There's, there is no effective authority constraining it. There theoretically are congressional committees that were founded in the wake of the COINTELPRO abuses, namely the, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and they are the oversight bodies. But the oversight bodies have been thoroughly co-opted. They don't, they don't actually practice effective oversight. They're spoon-fed information by the agencies. And frankly, the agencies lie to them all the time. That's, that's what we were supposed to learn from Edward Snowden was that everything the agencies had said to Congress over the prior year was just a flat-out lie. And there's no reason to think that they've been telling the truth over the last 10 years um, since you know no one ever held them to account for the, the last set of things that were revealed. When you look at the Russia case, do you see the sort of abuses you've seen elsewhere? And do you think it's a moment for Republicans who often have been the law and order party and have kind of not embraced these issues to join with enough Democrats and liberals and libertarians to, to make a difference, to make a policy change? I certainly hope so, because the, the investigation and the surrounding set of circumstances exposed and revealed, I think, how everyone shares an interest in our basic rights. I think there's long been an illusion that, that rights are only valued or needed by some communities. And the fact of the matter is it's our rights that make us American. 
And I, I do hope that that Republicans who maybe were willing to defer to agencies in the past are willing to look skeptically, as the founders of our nation did, at institutional power and embrace checks and balances. I'm very deeply patriotic. And the constitutional design, the genius of pitting powers against each other to protect us, the people, is is, is incredibly poignant. And it's been lost entirely in, in the constitutional design. And I do hope that you know many Republicans... Uh, respect the Constitution. I hope that they come also to recognize how they share an interest in its preservation. Um, and, and I do think that's happening. To, to answer the first part of your question about the legitimacy of the investigation itself, you know, I, I am not a fan of this president, but I don't think that the Russia investigation, frankly, you know, made a lot of sense. I mean, I would just say two things here. One, it is really suspicious to me when political figures, kids have lucrative positions that they're not qualified for. Uh, and two, if we're going, you know, the, the thing about Trump that I found most alarming that I frankly wish he were impeached for is corruption. You know, he steals from the American people every day. He puts taxpayer money in his pocket. That to me was the impeachable thing, not a partisan crime. I mean, it, yes, it's problematic to invite foreign interference in a U.S. election and, and that that is a, a crime and it could be impeachable, uh, you know, to the extent the votes were there in the Senate. But the whole thing about Russia seemed to me to be uh, you know, trying to chase a, a, an attenuated fear when there was a real problem in documented fact that no one was actually addressing. And, and, that, and that was the, the, the continued pattern and practice of self-enrichment at public expense that not just Trump practices. You know, this is a really important point to, to, to impress upon here. And I think this is the reason that Nancy Pelosi didn't include corruption in the late and limited impeachment facade that she supported Many corporate Democrats have the same problem. You know, corporate politicians. We shouldn't have corporate politicians. We shouldn't have politicians that profit from office. We shouldn't have politicians that put corporate interests before their constituents. And that's a common problem across both parties. Yeah, when I worked for Newsweek, I wrote a story about how Nancy Pelosi was dealing with a credit card issue coming out of the financial crisis. And her husband, I believe it was Paul Pelosi, got a preferred stock offering from one of the credit card companies right at the moment that these discussions were going on. And that you know, got a lot of controversy for a few days. And But the the culture of uh, Congress people getting rich or having their families get rich around the corporate interest and interested in their policy has not changed one bit. There's been a lot of lip service over 30 years of my journalism career, but there hasn't been a whole lot of change. Yep. And you know who's been in office that entire 30 years is Nancy Pelosi. And they called that law that, that, that passed in response that enabled those effectively what would have been insider trading, illegal insider trading transactions are permitted under some parameters for a member of Congress under a provision called the Pelosi provision. And when you have provisions named after prolific members of Congress that enable ongoing corruption, it might be worth removing those people and getting new voices in. There'll be a lot of people watching what you do this fall. And uh, it's the first real challenge that uh, Speaker Pelosi's had in her, in her district in a very long time. And uh, it'll be two Democrats against each other, which we haven't seen in the district for a long time. And so it's never happened. It's the first time any Democrats ever made it to November. Yeah, that's right. This is the first time. So this will be historic. Well, I hope to have you back on. We'll be monitoring this race through the year. And I thank you so much for taking the time to to share what you're doing and, and to give us some of the, the lay of the land for what's going to be one of the more interesting races in the fall. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I look forward to that. Keep up the good work. All right, folks, we'll be right back uh, to wrap things up after the commercial break. All 
right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. We'll be back next Tuesday with another edition and probably a big breaking story on the Ukraine-Russia scandal front. We've got some new documents we'll be divulging next week. I hope you join me on Tuesday for that. In the meantime, many of you ask, how can you support what we're doing? If you like our reporting, I like our podcast, like our video, uh, one way is to go to the jtnshop.com. That's our new store, jtnshop.com. Lots of items you can buy there. And if you do that, uh, proceeds from the sales come to help support our journalism. We're very proud of that. And of course, there's all the great sponsors that support this show every day. Plexiderm, Omaha Steaks. There's so many of them. UFM Underwear, uh, Men's Underwear. There's great, great friends, great, great fans of this show that are helping us support and make this show possible. Please support their products. That's another way you can do it. In the meantime, have a good weekend. Stay in touch with justthenews.com if you're looking for a breaking news fix or some new exclusive stories. And we'll be back again on Tuesday for a new edition. I'm John Solomon, and you've been listening to John Solomon Reports on Just the News.